Hello and welcome everyone to FF Plus, your outlet for weekly reviews that are simple, short, and spoiler-free. As always, I'm your host, Aaron White. Today I have one review for you and also a little bit of an experience that I got to have recently here in Seattle to share. So stick around after we talk about the newest Autobot adventure to hear about that. So on to the review. This film is Transformers Rise of the Beasts from Paramount Pictures. It stars Anthony Ramos, Dominic Fishback, and the voice talents of Peter Cullen, John DiMaggio, David Sabalov, Ron Perlman, Peter Dinklage, Michelle Yeoh, Liza Koshy, Michaela Jai Rodriguez, Pete Davidson, Coleman Domingo, Cristo Fernandez, and Tongai Chirisa. It is directed by Stephen Cable Jr. It is written by Joby Harold, Darnell Mateer, Josh Peters, Eric Hober, and John Hober, and based on the Transformers action figures by Hasbro. Cinematography is by Enrique Chediak, and music is by Jongnik Bontemps. It runs 127 minutes and is rated PG-13 for intense sequences of sci-fi action and violence and language. What's it about? During the 90s, a new faction of Transformers, the Maximals, joined the Autobots as allies in the battle for Earth. Now, Rise of the Beasts serves as both a sequel to the 1980s set film Bumblebee and a prequel to the Michael Bay series of films that take place in the 2000s and 2010s. It sort of is intended to bridge the gap, so we pick up the story with the Transformers having been on Earth for around seven or so years and not having been revealed to the world yet in the way that they ultimately would be in Michael Bay's first Transformers movie. Now, right off the bat, I got to get this off my chest. Pete Davidson, as a character named Mirage, a Transformer who is a Porsche, might be the best part of this movie. I can't even believe that I am saying those words right now, but practically every line of dialogue is hilarious or perfectly sweet. None of the humor feels at all sophomoric or vulgar either, and there's a a wonderful Mark Wahlberg reference, by the way. But this character of Mirage and Noah, played by Anthony Ramos, end up having the primary Transformer and human connection for this film, and their relationship is just great. It's so much fun. It's so, Mirage is so snappy and fulfills a role in which he essentially steals every single scene that he's in when he talks. It is a really surprising performance for me from Pete Davidson. He absolutely nails it. Now, Noah, his whole thing is that he is an ex-member of the military who is now back at home trying to take care of his family but struggling to do so. Particularly, he has his little brother who he adores, but his brother has a pretty rough disease which needs a lot of expensive treatment that they are unable to provide at this time and it is wearing on him in a major way. I like this a lot. And I liked how it drives his character actions throughout the movie. And then also specifically about how Mirage ends up 
really respecting that quality about him and the way that they grow in their relationship and into what is a genuine friendship, much like we used to see already with Sam Witwicky and Bumblebee and other pairings of characters throughout this series. The rest of the voice cast is pretty good too. Obviously, Peter Cullen as Optimus Prime, you can never get enough of that. There is a recognizable actor from Ted Lasso who shows up to voice someone. That was an unexpected treat for me. Absolutely loved it. And then Peter Dinklage's voice sounds like it's been altered somewhat to make it more terrifying, but it works really well for the antagonist and villain of this movie. His name is Scourge, and he is the number one general of the big bad in the film. I didn't really care much for Michelle Yeoh voicing this large bird maximal named Air Razor. Literally, that is the name, Air Razor. Some of these, I, I I just can't get behind. Like, that one sounds so silly to me. Anyway, for some reason, her voice really took me out of the moment, and it just sounded like Michelle Yeoh to me and did not seem to fit the look of the beast when it was speaking in a way that other Transformer voices have in the past. So slightly less effective than many of the others. Of course, her actual voice performance is fine. It just don't feel like it was a good match. The main plot of this movie is nothing really groundbreaking. It involves a long lost device that can create a portal for transportation. Sound familiar? And it would allow both the Transformers to finally get home after being abandoned here on Earth, get back to the Cybertron where the war was raging, but also allow this absolutely massive planet-eating Transformer called Unicron, which is basically the equivalent of Marvel's Galactus, to show up and consume our home. The story involves a pretty fun heist-like scene at one point, and overall vibe of something like the Uncharted series. Since this device they find takes them on a journey to an ancient civilization around the globe and on a quest to decipher old symbolic writing and explore undiscovered locations. Dominique Fishback's character Elena is a knowledgeable historian and plays the reluctant Nathan Drake kind of part. It is also driven by Optimus Prime not really being aligned with the humans yet and stubbornly fixated on getting his crew back home, while Noah is more concerned with the danger of Earth being eradicated. Enter the Maximals, who have been protecting this device and have taken an oath to never let Unicron devour another planet after he had destroyed theirs. And there's a solid, if not fully explored, little moral dilemma to be worked through that adds a lot to this plot in a positive way. Overall, the Maximals are a cool addition to the universe, although no one other than Air Razor and Optimus Primal really has any sort of personality or speaking part. And for having the film named after them, they were remarkably underutilized, I thought. I was not aware that they transformed until it happens quite late in the movie, and it was quite the shock to see because of how it's almost the inverse of what a Transformer does. It makes for a pretty great action sequence, however, and a lot of carnage in one particular climactic battle. The action overall 
is really good. It's again more coherent than the Bay films, but also feels less heavy and a lot less serious to me. Even when characters are killed in this one, it just doesn't have that same brutality that the mainline film series did. And it's more akin to the kind of action figure esque style in Bumblebee. There are some crazy sequences, but not many stood out as incredibly memorable. One major death blow and a Bumblebee ass kicking session withstanding. Those two are great cheerworthy moments that got the crowd really excited. And I think people are going to go nuts for those when they see this in a crowded theater on opening night. The movie ends with a scene that I also didn't see coming. And even when I thought I had it pegged, come to find out I'd still misread it. It's not the post credit scene of which there is one, a mid credit scene that happens really quickly. So you won't miss out on that most likely. But it is one of the most surprising things I've experienced in a movie in a long time. Something that was just so unexpected and hit me out of left field. And I, I just hope that you all make it to this point of the film unspoiled so that you can see it for yourself. Consider that my strongest warning to get off the internet now until after you get your time in the theater. So having just rewatched the whole series and ranked all of the movies in the past week or so, go listen to that episode if you haven't already. It was on FF+. I can say this slots in well among my top three films in this franchise. I don't know exactly where it will fall yet, but I'll know after I sleep on it in a day or two, I'm sure. So feel free to follow my Letterboxd account and you'll see a link to my Transformers ranked list there, and you can get that information. This is a good movie. It's once again another hit for this franchise. I said it a lot when I covered it in that previous episode, but I really dig practically every movie in this whole series outside of The Last Night. And I'm glad this one exists. It left me wanting even more, and I think that it's going to be a surprise hit the follow-on to the movie bumblebee which everyone seemed to really like the people who don't like the bay films I, I should say really liked it and it bridged the gap because those of us who do like the bay films also still had a good time with bumblebee this just is more of that and in a very good way although i think it's even more successful than bumblebee for me because this is not just straight humor. It's pretty serious almost all the way through the movie. Yes, there's there's a lot of fun and comedic moments, but it is, I would say, the most tonally consistent movie the franchise has had yet. And I just like the globetrotting kind of vibe of something like Indiana Jones worked in there with these archaeological places that they've got to visit and this, you know, old artifact thing that is such an important part of the plot. So I really dug it. Transformers Rise of the Beast will be available in theaters on June the 9th, and I'm pretty sure Patrick and I will be talking about it on this week's full episode of the show. So come listen to that spoiler-filled extravaganza in a few days. All right, for those of you that want to stick around for a few minutes, I'm going to talk just a little bit about an adventure that I went on this past weekend to see 
Stranger Things The Experience here in Seattle, presented by Netflix and Fever. This was an immersive event that I was lucky enough to be comped tickets to check out. So I had four VIP tickets and took three friends with me to find out what this experience was all about. We got there and it's sort of a traveling type of show. So they go to different cities. They're in Seattle for a while. They set up in kind of like an old warehouse type area where they bring their own props and they have, it's almost like a traveling escape room type of vibe to it. There's great production value throughout and some really cool special effects. When you first arrive, they bring you in and everything is already immediately looking like you're in the town of Hawkins. There's a a Hawkins, welcome to Hawkins city sign. And then you get in line outside of the, and I'm putting this in air quotes right now, the Hawkins lab before getting separated into three different groups, roughly about eight people or so in each group. So, you know, anywhere from probably 20 to 30 people in your group that is going to go through the experience together, separated into three different smaller groups within the large one. And essentially what happens is they have actors who are playing roles like lab assistants, and they walk you through your time at the Hawkins lab. You are playing a protagonist in your own storyline in Hawkins within the Stranger Things universe. The idea is that you're there to participate in a sleep study. But of course, things go wrong and it becomes much more interesting and Stranger Things-esque. The first few rooms that they take you through are kind of like escape rooms but they don't actually have you solving any puzzles. It's more like you're being guided through an interactive story. I won't give it exactly away what this is, but they do use what I consider to be sort of a silly gimmick that helps to make you feel like you have superpowers and that you're part of the world. And it is meant to have you interact with the story and the events that are taking place around you. Adults got bored of it after like one and a half rooms and you could tell because the thing was, no matter what you did, you could participate in what they were asking you to do or you could just stand in the back and the story would progress at the same rate no matter what because everything is like pre-recorded. However, younger kids in like elementary age and probably, I don't know, maybe junior high-ish is what we had quite a few of. They were eating it up and really enjoying doing the physical actions that they were inviting you to participate in. It all builds to this one big finale area that is actually quite amazing. It alone, I would say, is probably worth going to this for because it was something that was very different than the first set of rooms that you travel through. And it was just uh, sort of a a mind-blowing kind of experience with the way that you get to view the Stranger Things characters and interact with some of the more well-known dangers in the universe, I will say. Overall, it's about a 45-minute or so 
total time to go through this. It is really cool that the actual actors recorded their parts for this. So you get to see Matthew Modine at times as Dr. Brenner. You get to see all of the kids talking to you and engaging with you as if you were there. I wasn't expecting that, but it was really nice. Once you get out of this, you get into a little hub area with some themed shops like they had the upside bar or the upside down bar. I didn't see the word down on the sign. Uh, Scoops Ahoy from the show and Surfer Boy Pizza from the show. There's several merchandise shops, some photo opportunities, and then quite a few standalone old arcade game cabinets around that you could play. Very much just giving you the vibe of like an 80s food court, just like you would see in a mall represented like it was in the series. We got comped VIP tickets, and I will say for what those cost, that it is absolutely not worth it at all. It's around $115 for a VIP ticket for the Seattle experience. You get an $18 drink, alcohol if you want, alcoholic drink if you want, a mocktail if you prefer, and it comes with a plastic souvenir cup, a tote bag that says Stranger Things on it, and a small gift item. Ours was a little toy bobblehead-looking Dustin figurine that also is a Bluetooth speaker, supposedly. It was like one of those little things you'd find at Hot Topic or something. But, of course, they're random, so you don't know what you're going to get and if it's going to be something you'll even like. We had a good time going through it, but I think that if we had paid that much per ticket, we would have instead felt very, very let down. My personal opinion is that going through this experience is really cool and fun if you're a Stranger Things fan. It takes you 45 minutes just to go through the rooms, and then you might hang out for about 15 minutes in the cool little hub area, so it's like an hour. I say it's worth about $25 a person. That's what I would have been comfortable with. So if you can get it for that, I think it's well worth checking out. This will be in Seattle through the first week of August. You can check Fever Events website for tickets and scheduling of when they'll be in other cities. And there's also a place you can go there to nominate your city if you want to see the Stranger Things experience come your way. So that's a little bit about Stranger Things, the experience from Netflix and Fever. Thank you guys for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Excited to find out what you think about Transformers Rise of the Beasts when you get a chance to see it. So hit me up on the social media channels. You can find links to those in the show notes of each and every one of our episodes. Of course, I'll be back soon. But until then, keep watching and keep feeling filmed.